Would you take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 2? You know, a few uh, weeks ago, I knew that this time was coming where we'd have our summer break and kind of scheduled the, the preaching to kind of end it where we did we're studying as we're studying through the book of acts actually and and uh ending chapter 12 and i didn't want to start chapter 13 today and then take a break and then jump back into it again because we're starting a whole new thought there in uh acts 13 as we look at the advancement of the church into the world and so i had intended on just actually going through some thoughts out of genesis 2 and 3 and uh a little bit for a couple of reasons one is this is just a really powerful and I think timely passage for, for us to look at as a church, and, uh, and, and it's just a, a good focus. Second, I was actually asked to give a little evangelistic talk on man, and so this is some of the thoughts that I was going to share at this talk, but, but fundamentally it's something that I wanted us to uh, engage together. And, uh, and as the events of the world unfolded this past month, I realized it's a very timely passage to go through. And here's the reason why I was thinking about this. You know, we, we, I mentioned this last Sunday, but, you know, here you have a, a young man walks into a church and, uh, and sits through a Bible study, you know, down in, in South Carolina and then pulls out a gun and, and kills people. And, and he does it because he's a racist. Like, why would he do this? Well, he's a racist. That's, you know, and then, and then you start thinking. You know, this morning I looked on my phone, woke up, and I was just looking at the news reports of everything that happened overnight. And they were listing all the countries that were having problems. And, and you look at all those countries and you go, wow, this is like a dangerous world we live in. And then they were talking about 4th of July terrorist threats going on. And we have these, you know, our, our terror threat has moved up in the world. And, and, and so now they're saying, hey, be careful. The things could be happening. And, and then, of course, not only that, you have just problems and issues facing people on a, in, in, on a, you know, on a, on a micro level all the way up to macro levels. And, and in many ways, it seems like as you get older... All that really happens is that you get more aware of how complex the world is and how dangerous it can be and how difficult it is. And, and trials and struggles seem to be, at times, can be the defining characteristic of the world. And, and one of the things that was on my heart that I wanted to share today was just to answer the question, what went wrong in the world? Like, how do we really understand that, especially today, if you were just to, to sit down and say, okay, what are the headlines that are facing us on a, on a global scale, it's depressing. And then you recognize it, you walk around your neighborhood and you realize there's people with issues and struggles going on everywhere. And then, of course, in your, home, in your own life, I mean, issues emerge and, and, and it seems as if we face them all the time. And, and I thought, you know, it would be good for us to answer the question, what went wrong? Now, you might say, well, Steve, it's pretty obvious. Like, if you can't answer the question, what went wrong, you shouldn't be a pastor, right? Sin entered the world, right? That's kind of like... You know, class number one, you know, there's sin, right? You, know, you should know that. But yet, as much as we know that, and we can say, yeah, well, the problem is sin into the world, and, and Jesus resolved that sin, bingo, right? That's it. That's the irreducible minimum right there. I still think it's good for us to ask this question, to drive that question a little bit further, and to say, well, as we consider sin entering the world, what does that practically mean? How did it actually practically touch humanity? And what did it actually change in the course of what God created in this world? What did it change? And I think as we begin to look at that and unpack 
what God made and how sin impacted it, it will help us understand this world a little bit better. It will help us to put some things at times in categories for us to say, ah, this is what's going on here. Now I know how to pray. Now I know how to pray. Now I know kind of more specifically what to pray for. And so what I want us to do today is to unpack what went wrong. Unpack the creation of man. And then when sin entered the world, how did it connect? What did it attack in the actual creation of man? And then how does that cause the problems we have today? And in seeing that, two things I hope happens to us. Number one, I I hope that it helps us not be so overwhelmed. I hope that we can leave here today going, okay, I get it. I understand what's going to be happening in this world. And second, I also hope that it gives you an answer of how to be more targeted in your prayer. So when you're facing a personal crisis, you'll know how to pray for it. Or when you're thinking more of a global crisis, you'll know how to pray for it. And that we can be better prayer warriors as we engage. And at the very end, I want to even suggest some things and ways that we could pray together about the world. So, But what we want to begin, though, is we have to first look at creation itself. We have to look, when God created the world, what did he do? And when God created man, that's specifically what we're going to look at. What did God intend? What did he create within man? And we're going to look at some things. And so we're going to be first in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to kind of bounce around Genesis 2. And then when we look at what went wrong, we'll get into Genesis 3 very clearly and walk through the first handful of verses in Genesis 3. But first thing we have to do is just establish man. What does it mean to be man? When God created man, what did he create? There are four things that we can see in Genesis 2 that God created when he created man. I like to say it this way. This may not be the best way to say it. But I think there are four kind of virtues that God placed within humanity when he made humanity. And those four virtues are what are the the focal point of Satan's attack in chapter 3. If you can see the virtues that are given to man in chapter 2, you'll understand the attack that comes in chapter 3. And when you understand the attack that comes in chapter 3, the world starts to make sense. The conflicts and the problems. So I want us to see this here. So let's, look, there's four virtues. I'm going to roll off these virtues quickly, but, but don't try to write them down so fast because they'll be up on the screen as we unpack them. Okay? The four, four things, though, is that when God created man, we see in Genesis 2, he created man as first thing, an embodied being. I know that doesn't make any sense to you, I'll explain it. But an embodied being, that's the first one. The second one is he created man as a rational being. Third, he created man as a discriminating being. And fourth, as a creative being. Okay, now let's unpack them one at a time here. Okay, the first one is he created man as an embodied being. An embodied being. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 2. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now Genesis 2 is where Moses zeroes in on the creation of man. Kind of explains the whole... whole, uh, 
seven days in chapter one, or six days, I should say, and then chapter two, he gets into the seventh day, and then zeroes in on the creation of man. And here's how he explains it. He says, now, I want to tell you what was going on. When he created the world, he's given us a description of what the world was like before Adam was made. So there weren't bushes yet. All there was was the trees and the, and the, and the kind of what you would call uncultivated ground that God had created. When he said kind of let there be land, there was land, and let there be trees, and there were trees, and they were all there. He said it hadn't rained yet, so there wasn't sin yet, right? There wasn't, there wasn't the, the flood that had come that had changed the, the, the ecosystem of the world. So you had this mist, you had an uncultivated ground because man hadn't been created yet to cultivate it. And then he goes and he makes man. And there's two descriptions of the creation of man that are unique and distinct from all the other creation that God had done. When God created everything else, he just spoke it into existence. He went, let there be light, boom, and there was light, right? Let there be earth, there was earth. Let there be birds, there were birds. He spoke it. He said it, it was done. That's what you have. Now it comes to man. Earth is created. What does he do? He makes man. In the sense of he actually takes, the first thing we see is that he makes man of the dust of the earth. So he forms man's body out of dust, out of the earth, out of the dirt. What does that mean about man? Well, first thing it means is that mankind, humans, when I say man, by the way, I'm meaning man, women, generic man, okay? When he created this, what does it mean? It means that we're material beings. Material being means this. I can't walk through this wall without hurting myself. I cannot just like go through it and on the other side like a ghost. If I run my head head into this pulpit, it will hurt because I'm a material being. I can't suddenly fly and defy the laws of gravity on my own, right? I can't just whoa like that. I can't, I'm a material being. I'm a material being. I'm bound to this world. But then there's a second thing that he does when he creates man. Now that he's got the frame, he doesn't just go, life, and there was life. He could have. But instead it says he breathes his breath into this thing. Fuses him with his, with his spirit. This is that element that we say mankind has a soul. We're different. Rest of creation, animals, they work off of instincts. Mankind thinks and reasons and has a spiritual quest to their life. Cows don't. Cows just sit around and eat. There are no cattle think tanks where they sit around and think about what does it mean to be a cow, right? They don't do that, right? They just eat grass, make milk. And hamburgers, right? That's what they do. We create think tanks. And we sit around saying, what does it mean to be a man? Why do we do that? Because we have been, been embodied with the breath of God. An embodied being means that we're different because God himself infused us with a life. With a, an ability to seek out spirituality. An ability to to look around the world and say, what does this mean? And a desire to worship. Now we know sin has entered the world, and we'll talk about what happens when sin enters the world and how that changes the embodied nature of man. But when we're just looking at Adam himself, Adam, when he was created, 
had the breath of God which allowed him to suddenly be, here's the key, an image bearer of God. And to be an embodied being means you're an image bearer. You bear his image. You are able to reflect God. Cows are not directly image bearers. God didn't breathe his breath into them. He just made them cows. Now we worship God for the creation of cows. But mankind actually has the ability to reflect the love of God, the character of God, the nature of God. We're embodied, which means his, his spirit has given us a soul that allows us to commune with him. We're an embodied being. Now, when sin enters the world, it messes with that. But we'll talk about that later. Let's look at the second thing that we see in the creation of man. Not only is he an embodied being, we see that man is a rational being. Man is a rational being. Look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, we're going to look at the command specifically in a little bit, what that command says. What I want you to notice is a really surface observation. I want you to notice that God is reasoning with man. He's actually having a conversation, and he's saying, see all this? You can have that. See that? You can't have that. Don't eat that. If you eat that, here's what's going to happen to you. Now, you could eat all this as much as you want, enjoy it, right? He's having a reasonable, rational conversation. The amazing thing about human beings is that we actually have a rational mind to us. The fact that you can sit here and listen to me talk for 35 minutes or so, 40 minutes, and to follow that train of thought is amazing. God has given that to you. You're a rational being. When you do something foolish, like if all of a sudden I were to start banging my head on this thing, you would go, that's irrational, right? That is crazy. You don't do that. You don't do that. That's, that's crazy, right? That, that defies logic. Why in the world are you banging your head in that thing? I don't know, because it hurts, right? If I answered that way, you'd be like, what are you doing? It's irrational, right? We have been given a rational mind which allows us to understand trains of thoughts. It allows us to understand consequences. If you do this, then this. If you don't do this, then this. That's embedded. Now, what happens if that rational mind starts going down a bad train of thought? You ever had the two-in-the-morning train crash, mental train crash? You wake up, and you think to yourself, did I lock the door? Okay? I don't know if I did or not. And then all of a sudden from there, you've convinced yourself in like 30 seconds you're having a heart attack. And I don't know how you went from did I lock the door to where is everything wrong? Am I sick? You ever have that? You guys look at Somebody in the room has had one of those moments. Okay, maybe not the heart attack thing, but the whole element of your, your mind goes down this train of thought. And the next thing you know, boom, it's at a bad spot. Right? Thank you. We have one honest person in front of me. We should give her a round of applause. <laughs> you know that is that rational mind that once it starts a negative or a bad thought, it can take that thought really far. Do you see why gossip is really bad? Because once you start a negative train of thought, man, you can carry that thing forever. It's an infinite thought. Because God has given us this ability to think. Now, sin enters the world. How does it enter? 
It usually enters the past through that rational mind. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's keep going here and looking at how God created man. So he's embodied. He's rational. But also man is a discriminating being. A discriminating being. Now when I say that, don't think of discrimination like a negative, the negative term. Discriminating just means man has the ability to make distinctions and choices. Notice verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so what do you have here? He's saying, listen, as you live in this garden and you pass by this tree, I'm asking you to reflect this ability to say, I'm not going to eat of that thing. Because we have the ability to discriminate between decisions. How many of you stood in front of your closet this morning going, huh, what am I going to wear? Right? And you just hear, nothing works anymore. I'm sick of all my clothes, right? How many of you have done that? How many of you had like a bunch of clothes spewed out on your bed this morning? You know, they, you tried on and it didn't work, right? How many teenagers just stand in front of the fridge? You're like, close the door. I'm hungry. I just don't know what I'm going to eat, right? You're just trying to figure this out. That is that discriminating nature of mankind. You can say, I like beans or I don't like beans. I like peas, I don't like peas, right? You, you walk in a situation, I don't like that shirt, but someone else says, I like that shirt. Why? Because inside of us is this ability to make distinctions. Now that is directly related to our rational nature, and we'll get into that when we look at what went wrong. Because I'll tell you what, one of the great things, or one of the powerful things, I don't mean power in a good way, that Satan does when he comes after us is he starts messing with your rational mind so that the things that are bad suddenly become good and the things that are good become bad. And we're going to see that when we see how sin enters the world. And suddenly you'll start choosing all the things that are bad because you think it's good. And that's part of sin. That's what went wrong in the world. But first thing you need to realize is we do have this discriminating nature. From what we're going to eat for breakfast to what we're going to wear to bigger decisions in life. All the way through. Okay? But we'll get to how sin impacted that in a minute. Let's look at the last thing that we see about man. Okay, because not only in, you know, embodied and rational and discriminating, the fourth thing is that man is a creative being. Man is a creative being. Just look back a little bit at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now just stop for a moment. Think about this thought. What do you think work looked like before the fall? Right? If I tell you I'm going to go out and work in the garden, you're thinking I'm pulling weeds and doing all that kind of stuff. What do you think working in a garden would look like before sin? Because work was created before there was sin. So what does that mean that God had said, work it and keep it? Well, let me explain to you what these ideas mean. Work means to cultivate or create something that works. That's what that word work actually means. <clears throat> it means this. God was going to put copper in this world. And what he it intended to have happen was mankind to figure out that I can make a pot with this copper. And then I can put water in that pot and I can heat it up. Then I can find these great leaves over here and I can, I can, I can soak these leaves in my hot water until the leaves fall down to the bottom of the pot. 
And then I can pour that water into another cup that I've made out of wood and make a great cup of tea, right? God designed the world to be able to do that. And he's saying, I've given you all these raw materials. That's what that first thing that we looked at in Genesis when he said there was no man to cultivate the ground yet. Basically, God's saying, Adam, I've created you in my image. I've given you all these raw materials. I'm a creator. Go create with it. Reflect my image. I'm going to put in this world laws of physics so that one day some guy by the name of Bernoulli over 150 years ago could figure out high pressures and low pressures, and that could make some other people go, you know, you realize something, this whole thing of high pressures and low pressures, if we create this thing, it could fly. And boom, there's an airplane. God intended for all of that. I think that's all embedded there. That's a little conjecture on my part, but it's all embedded because what he's saying is create with this creation and then keep it, which means sustain it. Keep creating. Keep doing it. You're in my image. When you do whatever it is you're going to do with your day tomorrow, if you're a homemaker, you're at home, you're not just a homemaker. You get to work the creation to make your home a place where people flourish. And that's a gift from God. If you're an engineer, you get to sit around and figure out how systems and physics and laws and things work so that suddenly a creation could be made and God would be glorified. Every time an airplane goes up in the air, to me that's a moment of worship. God, you created this world so that these things could fly. This is how awesome this planet is. This is how awesome it is. And we get to work it and play with it and, and reflect the incredible rational embodied being that we are for your glory. Great things. Okay, that's what God created in man. He said, listen, I want you to be embodied, breathing my life into you. And hence, we look at all creation and we say, man, every baby in the world is is, is, is made by God, and we value that life, and we treat life with dignity because humans are embodied beings. We're rational beings. We can think, we can understand, we can learn, we can grow. It's incredible to think about that. We're discriminating, which means that we can constantly go through life and, and, and act in ways that can bring glory to God, and we're creative, and that God has given all of us the ability to work with this creation and to do things so that we would reflect the nature of our God. That's creation. It's incredible, isn't it? So what went wrong? Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at sin. And we're going to see how sin entered into this and how Satan attacked this. In fact, look at verse 3. Go to chapter 3 and uh, verse 1, I should say. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's crafty. What this means is this. He's talking about Satan, and he's saying, listen, here's the reality of Satan. He's very crafty. And here's what Satan did. Satan attacked two of those four virtues. He attacked only two of them. But the two that he attacked, by attacking them, when he attacks those two, I should say, the other two fall with them. And once all four collapse, you have all the problems you have in the world today. 
You have everything from the fight you had in your home this week to terrorist group cutting people's heads off. And you'll see it all right here when you see this crafty attack and how he went after two of those four virtues and the other two collapse and you get the world we have today. Let's look at it here. Okay, so let's see this. The first thing he attacked was the rationale of mankind. We're rational beings. The very first attack is against the thought process of Adam and Eve. Okay, notice what he says there in verse 1. He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Two things that Satan did there. The first thing that he did is he created doubt. He created doubt, and he created doubt by saying, did God say? You're questioning God now. Right? It's amazing how a question can set the table for everything. So, so I could stand up here, and I could say, hey, listen, why don't we just put some mics up around the room, and, and you guys could tell me everything you hate about me. Right? We could do that. We're not, but we could. <laughs> we could do that. Now, what would happen if you guys got into that? Okay? If you got into that. It could be possible that if all of you were lined up, sharing what you didn't like about me, the, the person who went last might walk away and never want to be in my presence again. Because going down that train of thought, everything you hate about something, is not a good start. Right? I mean, if you get a bunch of people in a room and say, listen, I'm going to get a bunch of people in a room, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to come complain about the way so-and-so's house is decorated. Oh, can you believe they decorate that way? I know, they waste so much of their money, and it's so inefficient, right? Now, if we're going down that train of thought, where does that train of thought end? How many times does it end with people going, well, let's just pray and give worship to God right now, right? <laughs> How many times does that train of thought end that way? Never ends that way. Doubt creates this element of a negative train of thought. And once that negative train of thought takes over, it owns it. And it's simple. Did God say? Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. Peter says, don't. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I'm not going down that train of thought. I'm not even going to respond to it. I'm not going there. Second thing he does, I want you to know the second thing he does, is he distorts the message. He distorts what God says. Notice this. You might, might have missed this. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say you're never allowed to eat from the trees ever? That's the question. Now, what did God say? If you look in Genesis chapter 2, and you look at verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Now, here's the interesting thing. He says, You can surely, and actually that word means freely. ESV is kind of a rough translation there, but I don't like it. It should be freely. You may freely eat of, what does he say? Every tree in the garden. Except one. So, I'm going to keep the math simple. If there's a hundred trees in the garden, how many can he eat from? Ninety-nine. Okay? He can eat from a bunch of trees. A bunch of them. Right? I mean, it, it's a, 
It's, it's, it's an amazing provision. But right away, again, what happens with a negative train of thought? If we say, hey, let's just sit around and complain about this person's house, complain about the way, you know, complain about their car, complain about this, you start getting away from all the greatness. And you're on this negative train. Did God really say that you can't eat from all the trees that you're left without food? Is that really what God said? Okay. Now, how is she going to respond? Well, she could do like Jesus. Get behind me. I go in there. Or you could respond. But once you respond, if you start giving credence to this, you start, if you start getting in a conversation, what happens? You're going in a bad direction. This is why Paul said quite frequently, reject the divisive man. It's a negative train of thought, and that division will take over in a heartbeat. He said it spreads like gangrene when people just don't know how to handle truth. It's horrible. Reject it. But she entertains it. And when she entertains it, I want you to notice her response. She leaves something out, and she adds something in her answer. Right? Because she bought this point. She bought into this logic, so she leaves something out, and she adds something. Notice verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. What did she leave out? Well, she left out the word, in the ESV it would be the word surely, but it should actually be the word freely. God said that you can eat freely. Okay, every teenager boy's dream. This is unlimited food this is what it says eat as much as you want no dietary restrictions this is pre-caloric days it's phenomenal no weight watchers man just eat it eat and eat and when you're done eat some more that's actually what it says eat freely man like a teenage boy just sit in front of the tree just eat it never stop just don't eat from that one that's all build a treehouse in it if you want, but don't eat from the fruit. Okay? Don't eat from the fruit. That's what she, but she leaves that out. No, we can eat of the tree. But then what does she do? She adds. She says, yeah, well, we can't eat from that one and we can't touch it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. You can do whatever you want with it. Just don't eat from it. That's all. What does she do? By admitting the idea, by leaving out the freely, adding the word touching. She minimized the blessing of God and maximized the prohibition of God. Right? Which is part of the sin problem, isn't it? Part of the sin problem is their life is better than your life. God hasn't given you enough. You're missing out on something. Right? The prohibitions... And, and what God is calling me to do, I can't do. It costs too much. It's too hard. I could never make it. The prohibitions are too great. And the blessings are too small. This is what's going on here. Her rational mind is being attacked. This is what happens. Now, once the rational mind is attacked, we're going to see in a minute, that influences the way you choose things. But Satan's not done. He's got to go after one more piece here. Second piece he has to go after is you have to go after the embodied nature of mankind. The fact that you've got the very breath of God within you. And, and I want to show this to you by, by seeing his response. And we're going to unpack his response here. So look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a pretty interesting statement here. Four observations I want to make on this. Notice, he's, first thing Satan does, he substitutes his word for God's word. God says, you eat of it, you'll die. What does Satan say? No, that's not true. Right? So heresy's entering into the picture now. He's got heresy. Second thing that he does is he questions God's goodness. God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows if you do, it's going to improve your life. What's the implication? God's holding out on you. Isn't that a struggle that we all have? Do, do you, isn't it true that we wake up every day wanting more? We wake up saying, you know, if I had this, then I could do this. And if we only had this, then I could do that. And if this person would do this, then I could do that. And because they don't do that, I can't do this. And God's saying, I've given you everything you need today right now to bring glory to me. You need nothing else. But our flesh always says, God's holding out. There's something else out there. I need it. If I could just get it. If I could just get it. God isn't provided everything. He's not good. Third thing he does. Satan says now, hey, listen, you're not going to die. God's holding out on you. And then the third thing he says is, you'll benefit if you break God's law. Really, actually, blessing comes. Disobedience is way better than obedience. Right? I mean, you know, and you think about it, you're raised as a teenager, right? My temptation as a teenager was to disobey my parents. I might have done it once or twice. I don't remember. But uh, as I get older, I, I keep thinking it didn't happen. But, uh, <laughs> but I can still remember I would come home from church, and sometimes my dad would do this thing. He, I, he'd call it go, he'd go fishing. Hey, talk to your Sunday school teacher after church. It wasn't my fault. Paul talked me into it. I had to start confessing, you know. <laughs> you know? Like, did she tell you what I did? No, I just talked to her after church. You know? <laughs> I was just getting you, you know. But we think that disobedience, that rebellion, is better. It's better. It's better than being the teetotaler Christian person who has no fun and all of that stuff. It's attractive, right? Disobedience, and you will benefit if you disobey. And then Satan does this. The fourth thing he does is then he redefines divinity. You could almost say it this way. Not only redefines divinity, he redefines what it means to be an embodied person. Rather than somebody who's been infused with the breath of God so that we could reflect the glory of God and be an image bearer of God. God created man in his image, in his likeness, so that we would reflect that image, reflect that likeness. We begin to start saying, wait a minute, I'm my own God. I can become like God. I can start having authority over this world. I can start using my decision-making ability to do what's best for me. I can start walking into situations and saying, I don't need to follow you, Mom and Dad, because I'm doing it my way. I don't need you. I don't need you, you know, leaders of the church. I'm doing it my way. God speaks to me directly, right? I'm my own God. That's what happens. It redefines the embodied nature of man. And when, the re- and when, when that happens, suddenly a terrorist group can say, God hates these people and he wants us to cut their heads off. You're not God. You're not God. God's the one who's the judge of the living and the dead. You're not. You're just his servant. But if you believe this lie, 
and you believe that you're more than just an image bearer, you're God himself, then you're going to get mad at a traffic jam, my sin. Because why aren't the people going? Don't they know I got to get to work? Hey, don't you realize you should get up every day saying, how can we make this drive easy for Steve? Right? <laughs> Can't we have like police officers go, come, come, you know? I want a limousine like the president just drive me to work. No stops. That's what my flesh wants. Why? Because my flesh doesn't see myself as a servant of God's timetable. My flesh sees myself as the director and the controller of my timetable. I've lost sight of the embodied nature of who I am. Now I want you to notice what happens. We're going to see the other two fall. The other two virtues fall. Right? He attacks the rational nature. She's going down that road. She, he attacks the embodied nature. You can become like God. And now once he attacks those things, Satan never has to tell her to eat the fruit. Satan never says, hey, follow me. He just, he just attacks those two things. She buys in. What does she do with her, what does both Adam and Eve do with their discriminating nature? Because God has made them a discriminating being. What do they do? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate too. What did they do? They used their ability to choose to choose against God because they bought into this mindset. And now evil seems better than righteousness. Disobedience seems better than obedience. If you drop down in the text, I'm not going to read it, but you can drop down in the text. Once their eyes were open, what is the first thing that they did with the creation? They made fig leaves for themselves. Did God want Adam and Eve to use their creativity to cover their own sin? No. The creativity falls at that moment now. Now they're, they're using it to cover themselves. Out of shame, they're using the creation. They're using the creation because of their depravity. They're not building the creation something that would bring glory to God. A teapot, right? <laughs> they're not doing that. They're using the creation to make for themselves a covering because of their own depravity and now the creative nature has fallen and in just a few short verses all four virtues attacked but they crumbled when those first two were attacked okay so what do we learn from this i want to make a few observations and then apply it directly to us okay just a few observations from this because i want us to understand what went wrong i want us to understand how to pray about this how to address this how to see it in our own lives in the world but first, just a few observations. First thing I want you to see, humans are an amazing creation. Life is incredible. Life is an incredible thing. This is why we value and uphold life here, right? This is why we do that. This is why we say children are a gift from God. It's, we just recognize this isn't just a, a baby. This is life. God ordained life. It's a gift from him. And when I look at a child, I see that they are amazing and any of you who have worked with children or had children or been around children, you know that they are amazing. They are smart. They can accomplish a lot. They're just not, you know, blobs on the planet. They're, they're beautiful creations. I just want to make that observation. We should celebrate that. Humans are amazing creation of God. But second, all of the virtues given to us were given so that we would reflect the nature of God. 
The problem of sin in the world is when we use the virtues for ourselves. When I start acting as if I'm God, that I want to do it my way, that my way is what matters most, I'm distorting the embodied nature. When I start to go down a bad road and I start rationalizing my sins, I'm using that rational nature not to understand and worship and glorify God. I'm using it to justify my own depravity. As a result of that, I start making decisions. that I start thinking fighting or being judgmental or being critical seems better than being rejoicing and, and uplifting and, and encouraging. All these things that start becoming the best way to go rather than the worst way to go. And then I'll start using creation for my own glory. Whatever skills I have, I want to use so that people would see how great I am. To such a degree that I could walk into this church and say, wow, no one sent me a card on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. They don't like me. Right? I can start doing that. Why? And then what is that? That's saying, wait a minute. Whatever gifts God's given you wasn't so that everybody could say, you're great. It's so that people say, God is great. God is great. It's about him. It's about him. All of these gifts we've been given are about him, not for us. So then third observation. Sin is not just bad things you do. Sin's a worldview. When I tackle, you know, you know, I bring up this driving issue a lot, right? As it comes out, driving, oh, I've got a red light, right? You know, I can't just say I'm going to stop doing that. What I have to say is, what am I actually believing about God and myself right now that's causing me to think that anger is an appropriate response? And I bought into a whole logic. I didn't just buy into an action. There's a whole worldview behind that action. I got to start thinking, how am I using my rational mind to start influencing me to make that decision? Where have I misunderstood myself, the glory of God, Jesus, and his role on this planet? All of these things, where is that off? This is why Paul said in Romans 12, you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You change as you begin to change the way you think about things. The world, God, things like that. People who feed their brain on just the junk of the world, and maybe they, they, can, they can just say, hey, there's nothing bad in that TV show. And you say, yeah, there is nothing bad about that TV show. But let me ask you a question. What are you actually feeding your brain with? If it's only these kind of mindless TV shows all day long, and you're sitting there doing that and maybe playing video games, you're not building any godly logic. <laughs> you're not building any biblical way of processing the world. And the next thing you know, sin will start looking pretty good because you haven't built a proper way of understanding. You're not being transformed in the way God wants us to be transformed because he knows that sin is tied to our, the way we think about the world. It's not just tied into an action. Okay? Where are we at? Was that number four? Okay, we're at number five, right? Fifth, because of sin, we don't use is that, am I on five? I'm on four. Thank you. Didn't seem right. Fourth, the ability then to choose is directly related to our rational mind. Those two go together. Kind of already made that point. I won't unpack it too much further here. But, but you get the idea now. It isn't just that I'm getting angry in the car or upset or frustrated. It's because I believe the whole system about myself. And as a result, it's making that choice seem like the right choice. It's, those two are connected. Now, number five, because of sin, we don't use the creativity that God has given us to serve God. 
We use it to either cover or even pursue our sin. How do we see that happen in the world? Here's how we see that happen in the world. People start saying, listen, I just need to express myself. I just need to be me. I just need to, this is how I love. This is how I do. This is how I, this is about me. And stop saying, it's not about you, really. God didn't give you that, that, that so that you would just be in this world of continual self-expression. God has created you to be an image bearer of God. And it might mean that you have to die to yourself so that you could reflect God's image. And it might be that you'll have to surrender things that you feel so that you could reflect God's image. But sin says, no, use your creativity for you. Now, how do we apply this then? Just a couple thoughts. A couple thoughts and some prayers. The thoughts are this. A gunman walks into a church and he sits in a Bible study fakes it, pulls out a gun and kills people. Why? Because he's a racist. What's wrong? What went wrong? Why did he do that? He did that because he has lost sight that God is the father of all humanity. That every single human being has been made by God himself. And we value life. And we don't stand there and use our discriminating nature to become racist. We use it to say, I want to figure out how to love this person because they've been created by God. But he lost sight as God is created. Why do terrorists cut people's heads off for religious reasons? Because they think they're God. They think that God has commissioned them to be judge of the living and the dead. Why do people cheat at work and hurt people and cheat on their IRS? Because they forgot that God's their provider. And their creative skills were were used to cultivate this work in a God-honoring manner, not in a way to get as much money for themselves as they want. Why do you fight at home? You fight at home because you've lost sight of the fact that you are an image-bearer of God intended to reflect His glory and His nature, and that your heart and your mind should be saying, how do I reflect God in this moment, not how do I get justice, how do I get things made right for me? It's about God's glory at that moment, not my justice. So let me give you some prayers. They're not going to be on the board. I didn't get them to the guys here. But but let me give you some things, some prayers that that I wrote for myself that I want to just share with you that, that, that I think have helped me apply this passage. Because you see, here's the reality. When Jesus came into the world... He came and it says, you know, he came and he died on the cross and he, and he bore the wrath of God for the sin of man. And what he was doing was he was bringing this redemption to the world. But when he's redeeming the world, it isn't just saying he's redeeming you in just your eternal state. Now when you die, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. It's not just that. He's also bringing redemption so that we can begin to operate within all four of those virtues again. That's the redemption of the cross. And so suddenly, I start praying this. First prayer, Jesus, please stop me from thinking I'm you. Help me to be content as an image bearer. Jesus, stop me. You're the judge of the living and the dead, not me. Jesus, help me to stop trying to be you in every situation. God, make me content to be an image bearer of you. That's the first prayer I wrote down for myself. Second prayer. Jesus, man, rescue me from my faulty logic. 
I don't want to start going down a row where I'm thinking in an illogical manner. Rescue me from a faulty logic. Third prayer. Jesus, allow me to see wrong as wrong and right as right. My flesh sometimes thinks that wrong can be right. My flesh can justify it. My flesh can justify it. Help me to see that wrong is wrong and right is right. And Jesus, allow me to use the creativity, the skills, which you've given me for your glory and not mine. Whatever gifts I have. I don't want to make it about me. I want to make it about you. That is the the practical application, I think, of of the redemption of the cross. That Jesus came not only to secure your eternal destiny, but to allow you to walk within the virtues through which God instilled in humanity at creation. So why don't we pray for that together right now? Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we've been through a lot. We've talked about a lot of things, used a lot of words today. but, But I pray, God, that you would help us all to stop trying to be you. It's a struggle we have. We've bought into that lie. One of the things that went wrong in this world. Jesus, rescue our our thought processes. We don't want to just be logical. We want to be biblical. We want to think like you think. So that we could see righteousness as purity and unrighteousness and wickedness as impurity and not believe that sinning is a way of enjoying life but as a path of destruction. And God, would we use our creativity for your glory, not for our own. Lord, I pray for every all of us in this room. I especially pray for the young people who are starting out in life, those that are, are on the, the, the front step of entering into adulthood, Lord, let these words just penetrate their heart that they might understand the importance of the cross that redeems us from these things so that we could live in a way that we can reflect the full nature with which you created us. God, may this be true with us. Thank you for your patience as you work this out in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.